Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Welcome to today's episode of Books, Books, Books. Today it's my very great pleasure to talk with one of Australia's greatest living writers, perhaps most well-known to The Secret River, but author of many other books, fiction and non-fiction, Kate Grenville. Kate has been writing since she was 16 and has published 16 books, including 10 novels, a biography of her mother, a memoir about the writing process, and her most recent, a scientific book, The Case Against Fragrance. Her books have been published around the world and translated into many languages. Kate's books have won many, many prizes in Australia and overseas, including in 2001, the Orange Prize for the Idea of Perfection, and in 2006, the Commonwealth Writers' Prize for The Secret River, which was also shortlisted for the Man Booker, as well as a number of other awards. In 2017, Kate was awarded the Australian Council Award for Lifetime Achievement in Literature in recognition of her extraordinary contribution to Australian literature. And in 2018, Kate received the Order of Australia. Kate, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you. It's lovely to be with you. And we're going to be talking today about Kate's new book, A Room Made of Leaves, which is published by Text. Kate, could you tell us what A Room Made of Leaves is all about? Basically, it's the pretend memoir of a real person. And that real person is Elizabeth MacArthur, who some people would know as the wife of John MacArthur, who was, uh, in my youth, known as the father of the Australian wool industry. He was an early, very important and powerful man in the earliest days of the Sydney settlement. Kate, I'd like you to start before we talk further by reading a short extract from your book, if you would, please. Yes, this is more or less the beginning of Elizabeth MacArthur's so-called memoirs. When baby sister Grace died, I was five years old, too young to know the word, dead. I barely understood what a sister was. I still hoped this new creature in the house, this squalling red bully, was only temporary. Mother was still puffy-eyed from burying her when father took the same distemper and was gone. It had to be explained to me. They thought they were explaining with the angels, in a better place. No, I screamed, seeing the box on the trestles in the parlour. But how can he breathe? Get him out. At the service, I kept twisting around, waiting for father to come in the door and sit down with us. Mother liked to tell the story, laughing in a bitter way, about me twisting and wriggling, running to the door, looking down the lane, calling for him. No one could quieten you, she'd say. Father, father, you shouted, till Mr Bond had to take you out of the church. I could not bear it, the noise of you, and of course I wanted him to come up the lane too. Every time you called father, it was like a knife in my heart. Before that was the feeling that the day could last as long as I wished, and none of it needed to be spent indoors. There was the feeling of fields and animals busy about their own lives, and the way those lives were bound intimately to mine. When my hands were big enough, I learned to milk the cow. It's almost the only memory I have of father, the smell of his tweed, his big warm self beside me, taking my hands in his and putting them on the teats, wrapping my fingers around their damp softness. I felt him chuckle with pleasure when I got the knack of the little movement that made the milk hiss against the inside of the pail. 
being the relative of Richard Veal of Lodgeworthy Farm did not become mother. She was broken by widowhood, or perhaps she had never been more than a reed leaning on her husband. She shriveled, took to her bed, went into glum, silent abstractions by the fire, punctuated with sighs that made me tiptoe away, frightened of this adult despair. I heard her one morning speaking under the window, softly, but the words floated up. I cannot even look forward to a son to take his place, she said, the his meaning fathers. Mr Kingdon rumbled in reply, too rumbly for me to make out the words. The best I can hope for might be a son-in-law, if she can manage it, she said, the she being me. Mr Kingdon must have tried to offer some kind of irritating comfort in which a reverend like him was well practised, because there was a sharp edge when she answered. Well, sir, I can pray and I can live in hope and expectation, but for the time being it is just me and a willful girl with no looks and no portion either. I had been leaning up at the windowsill, listening in an idle way, not much concerned whether they saw me, but at that I sank down out of sight and crouched against the wall, making myself shrink to the smallest volume. A willful girl. That word willful gave me a picture of myself I did not quite recognise. I knew I was a child full of sparks, knew I had a temper and a quick wit, a quick tongue, and got into enough trouble for them. That was the person I was. But now I knew that you called that willful, and being willful, I could hear it in my mother's tone, was something that made you unattractive, unpleasant, unlikable. I was hot with a sudden shame for being willful, as well as for having no looks and no portion, ashamed that no one would want me. Ashamed for my mother, too, in speaking that way of her daughter. I could smell the dust in the curtains and feel the cold draught from the crack where the skirting did not quite meet the floor. That smell and the feel of a narrow draught still fill me with the same terrible knowledge that came to me, hearing her words. I was not an orphan, but I might as well be, for all I had a parent to look out for me. You came across the letters of Elizabeth MacArthur 20 years ago when you were researching the Sacred River. Where did you find those letters and what were they like? What did they tell you about her? Well, the letters are held in the State Library of New South Wales and I was researching in a sort of general background way for the Secret River. Uh, we said at about the same time as, um, as the MacArthur's came to Australia. Uh, what I found were letters which were by and large incredibly bland and, let me dare to say it, boring. And that is because in the world those women lived in, bland and boring was what they were supposed to be. And letters were not private things. They were public documents to be read aloud in the parlour to the assembled neighbours and so on. So they could not write down, they couldn't leave for us any record of what they actually felt. So there are the letters in which she comes across as a devoted, somewhat devout, loving wife, you know, hardworking, all those wonderful values. Um, but the reality of her life is that her husband, John MacArthur, was a really bad egg, basically. He was a nasty piece of work. He was a bully. He was violent. Uh, he suffered from extremes of mood, which these days, you know, he'd probably be treated for mental illness. So he was a disastrous person to be married to. And her life in Australia must have been incredibly difficult in those early primitive days and with that husband. So what I saw was a lack of fit between these very bland letters and what can only have been a tumultuous life. 
And I thought, oh, okay, it's almost as if she has written the fictional version of her life. And somebody else might come along and write the factual version. And that version might take the form of a memoir, a long-lost secret hidden memoir um, that came to light somehow, you know, in some hiding place in an old house. And that person might publish them and bring them to the world in the form of a book called A Room Made of Leaves. So the whole book is based on this uh, nice little pretense that I've found those scandalous memoirs in which she actually spills the beans about what it was really like to be that woman in the late 18th century in early Sydney. Kate, what do her letters suggest about Mr MacArthur? What impression do you get of him? And sorry, I'm saying Mr MacArthur just because that's the way, that's what she calls him extraordinarily. But what impression do you get of him from her letters? Uh, she's very, very cautious, as you can imagine. Uh, she actually refers to him very little. And uh, at, some, at, at one point, though, after a few years of the letters, she says, um, up till now I haven't written very much about, John, about my husband. Uh, she's writing to a, a spinster friend. And in those days, to be a spinster was a great tragedy. So basically she says, I didn't want to crow about my good fortune in being married, so I haven't mentioned him. She then goes into a whole thing about how fabulous he was, how, how cheerful, how instructive, uh, what a wonderful husband he is. And I thought, okay, what would explain this? It might be that she was sort of shy of boasting about her husband. It may also be that the husband said to her, how come you never talk about me in your letters? Because the husband who reads the letters, by the way. Who reads the letters. It was fairly standard course to, to read each other's letters. They had a completely different thing about letters in those days. So he can't, could well have read the letters and said, look, you're talking about the economy of the, of, the, of the colony and, you know, how much sheep and wool are being produced. You never mentioned me. So I can imagine her then, okay, almost parodying him by saying what a fabulously um, instructive and cheerful person. And because she also, in, the, in my memoir, she says, well, yes, there's some truth in that. He was instructive. He was forever telling me about, you know, the, the price of a, a Spanish ducat and how much water you could put in rum before people would detect that it had been diluted. So... Um, there is one great mystery about Elizabeth MacArthur's letters. Her husband was away in England for two very long gaps. One was four years. One was nearly nine, I think. And his letters to her during that time are all recorded and he's constantly rousing on her for, you know, doing the wrong thing. Um, but the great mystery is that her letters to him, of which there must have been probably as many, have completely disappeared. And it is in those letters to him that we would expect to find some little ghost of what she might have really felt about her marriage. Mm. Now, that remains one of the great mysteries. Wouldn't it be fabulous if they suddenly turned mm. up? There was a time when I thought I would... Uh, the be the discoverer. Would... <laughs> yes. <laughs> Maybe there'll be a sequel. You, you may yet be. In those letters of Elizabeth, which, as you've said, were very, very guarded, and you used the word bland a number of times, there were five words that piqued your interest about her. What were those words and what did they suggest to you? Yes, the, the letters are a mask, I think, behind which she lived, but just once or twice the mask slips. Uh, there was a man in Sydney called William Dawes, Lieutenant William Dawes, and he was the astronomer with the First Fleet. 
And he was a very, very interesting man. I've written a whole book about him mm. in the lieutenant. Mm. And I think I fell a little bit in love with him <laughs> as I wrote about him. And oddly enough, I'm not the only woman. There are several other books that mention him in which that attractiveness uh, in him comes out. Anyway, she asked William Dawes to give her a lessons in a few easy stars, she said, a bit of elementary astronomy. And she writes to this friend back in England. She says, uh, he gave me some lessons, but I mistook my abilities. In other words, I couldn't understand the astronomy. And I blush for my error. Now, in the context of her incredibly bloodless, unphysical letters, I blush for my error was like a trumpet call of erotic suggestiveness. And again, I'm not the only woman to have picked up the erotic charge in those. Mm. So those five words really kept me going for the writing of the book. I blush for my error. Okay, well, what happened next? What happened after Mrs. MacArthur blushed? So it, it, it just was like a tiny little thread that I could follow through the maze of darkness of her life. Kate, you seem to have captured her voice so well. How did you do that? I know that you had access to her letters. What other documents, what other sources did you have that gave you an insight into her and that enabled you to create such an authentic voice for her? Well, look, um, I don't know whether it's an authentic voice. I think it's a, and I hope it's a convincing voice. It's Very convincing. But unfortunately, the letters that she left and a little tiny bit of a very um, neutrally toned journal are the only records we have. It's tantalising. It's, it's one of the things that has fascinated um, people about Elizabeth MacArthur. We know she must have been a remarkable woman because while her husband was away in England those two long times, she was running the equivalent of a gigantic company, virtually, well, from the record, single-handedly, although she must have had help. Um, she must have been a remarkable woman to rise to that occasion, mm. rise to that, take it on and obviously thrive, and she ran the business brilliantly. So, um, it, unfortunately... We know she must have been remarkable, but she hasn't left anything behind to tell us what kind of remarkable she was. So in trying to think of her voice, you know, it's funny, in some books I've had a lot of trouble with voice. In this one, I didn't. I remember sitting up in bed in my front room here, starting the book in an exercise book, writing by hand, as I often start, and the voice simply came to me. And in fact, it was the bit that I just read. I thought, okay, what was her childhood like? And there was her voice as if it was just waiting for me to write it down. I know that sounds a bit... Transcribe it. That's, you're transcribing it. I know that sounds a bit precious, but actually in this particular case with this book, I did feel as if I was channelling something. Can we re rewind a little bit and just talk a little bit about her early life? So she was born in 1766 and then her father died very early. And if you just give us a little bit of background, what her background was before she ended up marrying John MacArthur in uh, 1788. Yes, her father was a farmer in Devon. He was not a tiny, you know, he didn't have a tiny farm, but he didn't have a huge one either. So they were kind of middling. He was described as a yeoman in some of the documents. So, you know, a very steady, uh, not poor, but not rich, and certainly not gentry. Um, but Elizabeth made friends with the daughter of the local parson, the local clergyman, and they were obviously good friends. They were the same age and so on, and they remained friends for the rest of their lives. And, and a lot of the letters are written to her, aren't they, to Bridie? That, 
to Bridie. That's exactly right. The one where she talks about I blush for my error was written to Bridie, who I think probably would have thought as I did, oh, okay, you're telling me a little bit more here than is actually on the page. Um, so because of that friendship, she was educated in a way that a farmer's daughter might not have been in those days, whereas a clergyman's daughter probably would have been. So she virtually lived with the clergyman's uh, family for a fair bit of her childhood. That's a little bit vague, but it's clear that that's what happened. Because uh, her father died when she was um, um, six. Gosh, I've forgotten the exact dates. Anyway, she was very young when her father died and the farm was entailed, which is a weird system that you come across if you read Jane Austen. Um, so that means that Elizabeth and her mother uh, were basically turfed out of home. They went to live with Elizabeth's grandfather, her mother's father, and at some point she kind of went to live with the clergyman, Mr Kingdom, um, and learnt, learnt uh, you know, to read and write at quite a high level. So she was by no means a lady. It's funny, when I've been talking about this book, um, I say, oh, it's a book about Elizabeth MacArthur. Oh, people say, Lady MacArthur. And I have to say, no, 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 no. She was not a lady. She was a farmer's daughter, a good, honest yeoman's daughter. And, of course, John MacArthur, who would like to have thought of himself as an aristocracy, was actually the son of a draper, mm. not a particularly well-off one. And possibly apprenticed to a corset maker. At well, point. that's a nice little bit of a scuttlebutt about him. Who knows if it's true, but it could be. The other thing that was really interesting about Elizabeth's childhood was that, that before she went to live at the vicarage, that she spent some time, as you say, living with her grandfather, who knew a lot about sheep. And you give us some lovely detail about what she learns about sheep. And then when we come to the end of the book, and there's no spoilers here because everybody knows what they had to do with the wool industry, but you say at one point that he's known as the father of the wool industry in Australia, but perhaps it's actually her that was the mother, that she had the knowledge and then that takes us back to the beginning of the book where you've talked about how she acquired all that knowledge about sheep and all of that fits in very nicely. So she marries John McCarthy when she's John MacArthur when she's 22. What's he like, Kate, as a man and as a husband? Look, even as a suitor, uh, he obviously was no charmer. Um, well, first of all, on a purely kind of logistical Jane Austen kind of level, he was not a good match. He had no money. He was at that point an ensign, which is the lowest rank of officer, in a regiment which was just about to be disbanded. So he was actually living on half pay, virtually nothing. And there was no status in any of that. His father was a draper, had obviously had enough money to buy him the, the commission in the army, but no money beyond that. Uh, so he had no money. He had no social position because he was the son of a draper. Um, he was badly marked from smallpox, so he can't have been really good looking, I don't think. When he came back from a long absence years later, uh, a child who hadn't seen him for those years actually burst into tears at the sight of his, uh, and Elizabeth said, you know, his, that's when we mentioned, he mentions the pockmarks. Um, and of course, he didn't appear to be a very nice man. Uh, even at that time, Elizabeth describes him as um, too proud and haughty for our limited prospects or whatever. This is after they've decided to get married. So proud and haughty, but I suspect not proud and haughty in a rather attractive way like Mr Darcy, just proud and haughty and a bit stuck up. He, for example, uh, put about the story that the MacArthurs were actually descended from King Arthur. So, you know, very glorious, illustrious past. Uh, so he was a terrible snob. 
um, he his his um, look. There's so much I could say about John MacArthur. I think there is no question that the portrait that I've drawn of him as a very difficult, bullying, ruthless man is is based very much in the in the facts of the matter. His letters are mm. extraordinary. His letters, first of all, to his wife, but also to everybody else. He bullied, manipulated. He was a kind of a bush lawyer, so he'd pin people in a sort of, you know, um, he'd, he'd trap them, you know, like a good barrister. And, of course, he was endlessly having duels. Mm. So at one point he said, I, um, I, I, so he says something like, I consider it a point of honour to ruin any man who has made himself obnoxious to me. Mm. So that's the kind of attitude. One, one of the things that you make very clear in the book, though, is having heard all of that, he doesn't sound like a very attractive proposition for Elizabeth. But as we heard in the passage that you read earlier, even in her mother's own view, it sounded like, or certainly in her mother's view, her prospects of marrying well were limited. But more importantly, and this is a very important theme of the book, the options for women in the 18th century were very limited, pretty much your choice was either to get married, however unsuitable or unpleasant that marriage might be, or to enter what you call a cul-de-sac of spinsterhood. So it, Elizabeth realises, doesn't she, that, that, that there's no other option. There's not an option to be a single independent woman, clearly. Oh, there was no option. I mean, it, we, we've all read Jane Austen. We know that those women, they were obsessed with marriage not because they were romantic souls but because that was the only way of making a living was to marry a man who could support them. And that is, in turn, because mostly they were prevented from getting education. They were not allowed to work. Uh, once they married, they had no control over their fertility. Uh, there was no divorce. They could leave their husband if they really wanted to, but they had to leave their children and all their money, which became his on marriage if they had, did have any money. So they had a rotten time. And one of the things I, one of the things I wanted to do in this book was to say, look, the only record we have of these women are these bland letters. Elizabeth MacArthur's not the only one to have left bland, uncomplaining letters. Mm. And a little bit later on, those very stiff, faded photographs. Mm. And from that, we've built up um, a picture of um, them as being kind of compliant and somehow being accepting of lives which to us would be intolerable hell. Mm. They had to marry. And they usually married a man that they had, you know, maybe spend an hour with making polite chit-chat in a drawing room, and that was it. If you got into bed on the night of your wedding and you realised that this was not going to work, mm. and many of us have been in that situation, mm. I'm sorry, bad luck, that's your life. Mm. So I wanted to sort of rescue those women from the cliché and stereotype that they were somehow so different from us that they found that okay. We wouldn't. I don't think they did either. Can you tell us a little bit what life was like for Elizabeth and John, but more for her once they arrived in the colony? Well, she was the only woman, um, she was the only woman of education. No, that's probably not true. Some of the convict women, uh, because she was the wife of an officer, and it was such a class-ridden moment in the culture, um, she wasn't allowed to mix with any of the convict women nor would she be allowed to mix with the wives of the ordinary soldiers because she was an officer's wife. The whole thing about status having to be kept up. So the only other woman for quite some time was the wife of the clergyman 
And Elizabeth says in a, in a rare moment of, of wit, wit and frankness in her real letter, she says, um, Mrs. Johnson was a person whose company could, could give me neither profit nor pleasure, or words to that effect. In other words, you know, there was absolutely nothing to be enjoyed in her company. So Elizabeth must have been, I think, very lonely in her first years in the colony. And that may be part of the reason why she asked for the lessons in astronomy from Mr. Dawes. Mm. And because once she started to go out to Dawes Point, which was isolated from the colony a bit, and started to learn the astronomy, uh, it was a whole other world out there on Dawes Point because William Dawes was, as well as doing the astronomy, was trying to learn the language of mm. the local Sydney people. Mm. The, he is the best record we have. And he clearly, in his notebooks, uh, left a record of his learning the language. And what comes out powerfully is what a respectful attitude he had. It was, uh, he met these, uh, it was like a meeting of different planets, the British and the Aboriginal cultures. And Dawes and some of his Aboriginal um, informants were able to build this mutually respectful, uh, interested, uh, playful, rather joyous relationship between them. Um, and Elizabeth MacArthur, uh, I think it's very likely that she really did have some part of that, and certainly in my book I've made her part of that, learnt from William Dawes mm. how to accept difference, which is something that is very much uh, apropos of today. It's something we still need to learn, how to truly respect a, di a completely different culture. I'd like to talk a little bit more a bit later about that, about Mr Dawes and about the Indigenous people that she meets through him. Can we just go back a step to, we've talked a little bit before about the letters um, that you had, and I just wanted to check something. You quote quite extensively from these letters throughout the narrative. Are those quotes from the actual letters? Uh, yes. Uh, where they're in, in italics, uh, they are the actual letters of the real Elizabeth MacArthur. That bit is not made up. Mm. So the book really is a, it's a kind of slippery peekaboo thing between what is absolutely real, like the extracts from the letters, and the parts where I have kind of extrapolated from the truth and written into the gaps. I mean, you know... To learn about the past, we just have to do the best we can with the little bit of evidence that have mm. come down to us, which is very partial. Some documents, others have been destroyed. Um, some stories, others have been lost. For example, the Indigenous people would have had um, oral traditions about what happened then. There may be some still of those, but, you know, British colonisation did its best to destroy that oral tradition. So we have very little. So um, as a novelist, um, I'm, 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 I'm writing my way into the gaps between the bits of evidence. And that's why this book is absolutely not history. It is, it is a novel, but it definitely has its feet in and its starting point in the real, as, as in those letters of Elizabeth MacArthur. I'd like to talk to you now about what... I see and I think what you describe as really the whole underlying theme of the book and that's this concept of secrets and lies and myths and that arises in a number of ways. And Kate, right from the beginning you give us a sense in that early chapter about 
this whole concept of the disparity between appearances and reality. There's a lovely description by her of some paintings that are done on ivory of her and of Mr MacArthur. And that gives us a very early hint about how history can be distorted. Can you tell us a little bit about those paintings and how she describes what happens? Yes, as, as far as I know, there's only one picture of John MacArthur and it's repeated embassy. And there are maybe two of Elizabeth MacArthur. Um, and when I went out to visit Elizabeth Farm, which is where Elizabeth MacArthur lived for many years, and which is now a historic house or whatever you call it, run by the um, heritage people. Um, they're, they're up in the hall and a wonderful man was giving a little guided tour. And he said, well, of course, uh, these paintings are of John and Elizabeth MacArthur, but uh, they were not done here in the colony. They were actually done in England. And although John MacArthur went to England, Elizabeth MacArthur never went back to England. So... I thought, okay, well, it can only be that they got someone, either somebody completely invented Elizabeth MacArthur, some painter over in London, or they had, at best, they got sketches done here and were sent to Mayfair to be done on ivory. There were very few painters at that time in Sydney. There was certainly, I think, probably no ivory. Painting on ivory is quite an art. So... Anyway, when I realised that the paintings hanging there, which are always, oh, this is what they really looked like, in fact, that may be very far from the truth. The person who painted them had never seen, certainly, Elizabeth. I thought, what a fabulously vivid kind of example. Metaphor. of, of this. <laughs> Yeah, we look at yeah. that face and we think, oh, is that what she was like? Actually, uh, it may have bear no relationship to what she looked like. And in fact, when you see, I, mean, I had a bit of a look, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've only seen two paintings of her. In one, she looks like she has dark hair and slightly sharp features. Mm -hmm. But in this one, on the ivory, she seems to have billows of fluffy hair and very rosy cheeks. And there's some suggestion at the book, isn't it, that Mr. Uh, Mr. MacArthur might have been a bit of a guiding hand, given oh. the painter a little bit of assistance as to exactly how he wanted to think Mrs. MacArthur looked. Yes, and in fact, that puffy, the puffy-haired one, uh, which has the look of a kind of stylized, a stereotype, um, not actually any real person, mm -hmm. uh, that has been, I think that's described in the records as, you know, said to be of Elizabeth MacArthur. The other one looks like a real woman. Mm. That is, I think, more likely to be. So I, I disregard the, the fluffy-haired one in which she looks a bit like, oh, I don't know. A male fantasy, I thought. Oh, thank you. That's exactly <laughs> that is exactly right. She looks like a Barbie doll. Yes, she does. <laughs> um, Kate, we learn very on, very early on that Elizabeth's very clever, and she learns that she needs to manage this husband of hers. She's stuck with him now for life. She's seen various examples of him getting into fights with people, causing problems, people finding him difficult to deal with. She's as she says, her destiny is linked to his. So she works out that to deal with him and to live with him, she needs to match, she says, to match his cunning with her own. There are a number of ways in which she does that. Could you tell us what some of those are? One of them is that um, after they'd been in uh, Australia for a couple of years and made a lot of money, thanks to MacArthur's, you know, little shenanigans, um, he got into trouble with the local governor and decided that it was time for them to go back to England. They'd made some money. 
his ways of making money in Australia were closing down, so they'd go back to England. Now, by this time, Elizabeth was in love with Australia. She had, partly thanks, I think, to Mr Dawes, discovered what is quite difficult for English people, to look at the Australian landscape and find it beautiful. Many English people even today say, oh, it's so boring, it's all the same. Well, not really. If you have eyes to look, it is neither boring nor all the same. Anyway, she had fallen in love with it, and that's what the title of the book is about, A Room Made of Leaves. She's got a little room made of leaves down by the river, which is her special little spot. Um, so she's horrified when MacArthur says, right, let's sell up and go home. I will sell it to the governor. And she manages to manipulate him into asking so much for the farm that they've got uh, that um, the result is the opposite of what MacArthur wants. She, she kind of coaxes him and teases him into asking for three or four times what it's worth, mm. a colossal sum. And as a result, the governor uh, says no. And what's more, the people in England, the authorities in England, are suddenly looking rather carefully at John MacArthur and his dealings in rum, particularly. And so the whole thing backfires and they get to stay. So now whether she really did that, I don't know. But um, something happened. Something happened to make them stay. She talks about other little tricks she has as well. So she keeps a serene smile on her face at all times and she plants ideas in his head and lets him think that they're hers. So... The whole of their relationship, really, at least from her side, is underpinned by deception, isn't it? That's right. She realises that to deal with such a difficult man, she has to do, you know, what women have been doing for centuries and what many women in many parts of the world still have to do, which is to be the power behind the throne, doing their best to manipulate a man into doing what a woman sees ought to be done, which is a pretty rotten way to have to live, actually. Mm. We are so lucky uh, to live, first of all, now in the 21st century, but also in, you know, wealthy, in a wealthy country where, as women, we have, we have independence and power. So that kind of manipulation is the only possible way of doing it. You get a hint of it in Jane Austen novels, not so much in the television series, which are very kind of fluffy and romantic, but in the novels, you do get a sense of the steely reality of that world for women, where they simply had to be fairly ruthlessly dishonest in mm. making their man mm. do what ought to be done. That was all they could do. That was the only power that they had. Exactly, yeah. So there's another aspect of um, deception, which I think is very important as well, and that is it becomes apparent to the reader that the face that she shows to the public is not really her true self and at one point there's a description um, we say oh, I'm sorry you say where she goes down and finds a spot by the river and that makes her happy I think this is when she's in Parramatta at this stage and she says she can just sit there quietly and slip out of the skin of Mrs John MacArthur. Kate could you tell us a little bit about how she presents herself to society and what she actually is really like and the discrepancy between the two? Well, the way she has to present herself is as the wife of, um, at that point, Captain John MacArthur, the richest and most powerful man in, in Sydney, uh, in New South Wales, in fact, um, and, a, and a snob. So she had to present herself as a lady, in fact, 
someone of great uh, control and gentility and um, kind of, um, you know, she has friends among the other officers, but she can't flirt with them. Uh, one of them tries to flirt with her and she's tempted just for a moment, but she has to maintain a very serene uh, kind of um, dignified appearance, which is appropriate to Mrs. John MacArthur. Uh, as, as, as a boyfriend once told me, <laughs> this is kind of shocking, you know, you represent me now. <laughs> You know, the woman as kind of the public face of the man. It's and that, of, that wasn't the 18th century either. That's, that's right. That's <laughs> not all that long ago. So that's, and even if it's not stated, I think that's very often the case, that men want their women to often, you know, look sexy so that other men are jealous, all that kind of thing. So a woman is, is sort of seen as an extension of the status uh, property, really, of a man. Um, now, the real person who she discovers w with um, William Dawes mm. was be very different uh doesn't mind sitting down on the dirt along with the um the local aboriginal women uh and having a good time doesn't mind being laughed at by those very clever very clever and funny women and of course she doesn't at all mind going to another roommate of leaves in the company of the sexy mr Dawes, and discovering the delights of the body basically mm. Let's talk a little bit about that. When she meets this Mr. Dawes, it's ostensibly, well, not ostensibly, she goes to see him because she wants lessons in astronomy. But pretty soon she talks about how he immediately speaks to her real self. And she actually says, not the brassy Mrs. MacArthur, the lady of banter, or not the charming Mrs. MacArthur, that brittle carapace of a person. He seems to immediately perceive the real her. What happens after they start to work together? So he starts as her teacher, teaching her about astronomy. She, through him, she meets, as you've mentioned, some of the Indigenous women. She is exposed to them. She talks to them. And they make a bit of a joke at her expense at one point. Could you tell us about that joke? <laughs> yes, she, she's a woman of great intellectual curiosity. So she genuinely does start by wanting to understand uh, as she says, this, even the stars are different in this in this new place, which of course they are. You know, no one in the Northern Hemisphere had seen the Southern Cross, that cliche for us. It was all new. So that it began as a genuine intellectual curiosity on her part. And Dawes was, uh, at least in my drawing of him, a rather shy and awkward but very sincere man who was not into pretending, was not into the social games, and that spoke to something in her. Because she was the only officer's wife, they used to come to, the, you know, the MacArthur's house and have these salons in the afternoon, uh, all these men having a great time and her, you know, doling out the cups of tea. Dawes is the only one who doesn't come because he's, he's a shy, introverted man. He's not interested in that kind of social chit-chat, not interested in flirting. He's a very sincere very uh, rather eccentric man. When I wrote The Lieutenant, which is, you know, based on my picture of him, um, several people said, was he autistic? So that kind of extreme awkwardness, I don't think mm. he does at all. Uh, that's just putting a label on, I think, human variety. But he was had somebody very ill at ease with that pretense, um, you know, couldn't be bothered playing the mm. social game. So at some point... Um, 
so they they visit and um, they have the lessons in astronomy and they are drawn to each other and I think perhaps neither of them realises it. But the Indigenous women who are visiting them and often spending time with them uh, realise it long before Elizabeth MacArthur does. And one of them... Uh, one of them says to one of them, one of them asks Elizabeth MacArthur, she says, is he heavy? Is he heavy? And MacArthur in her kind of innocence doesn't quite understand what's being asked mm. for a moment. And then she does understand. And she looks at doors. And in that moment, they both realise what they haven't twigged to till then, and which the Indigenous women have known all along, which mm. is that these two people are getting together, yes, of course, for astronomy, but they're also deeply attracted to each other. Yes, so they see the, the clever Indigenous women see that spark of attraction before either Mr Dawes or Mrs MacArthur recognise it in themselves. And then from then on we see a lovely, albeit far too brief, uh, <laughs> interlude in which uh, Elizabeth enjoys great happiness with Mr Dawes. They have a fantastic physical relationship and we see her really, I think, as her true self and probably for the one time in the book, truly happy. Yes, it is unfortunately a brief time and they both know it is. There's no future in it. There's no way, no possibility of a future for them. And they, they accept that and they just take, take that moment of happiness that the universe has given them both and um, make the most of it. Um, have a wonderful time and... Certainly Elizabeth MacArthur discovers uh, the person that she might have been if she hadn't been obliged to marry John MacArthur, somebody much more straightforward, somebody much more playful, somebody more honest, um, and above all, somebody who can simply frankly enjoy life with gusto rather than having to tiptoe around a very, very difficult uh, situation and a difficult husband. Mm. So she learns things with doors, which, as she says, when the, when the affair comes to an end, she learns things that will be with her for the rest of her life and comfort her and show her a way forward for the rest of her life. I want to talk, Kate, now a little bit whilst we're on this idea of deception and of false stories about the Indigenous people and the role that they play in your book. They are a presence throughout the book, although a silence, a really a very a silent presence. When uh, John and Elizabeth MacArthur first arrive in the colony, what does he tell her about the native people? What dreadful rumours has he heard that he repeats to her? Yes, I'm glad you asked me this because really the book is about the fact that false rumours, once they start, are very, very hard to put right. And they then dictate, they travel on to the future as a sort of toxic stain. So, for example, one of the things that John MacArthur has heard from somebody, which was a rumour among the uh, first British settlers, is that among other terrible things, um, the Indigenous people eat their own babies. Now, this is an absolutely abhorrent bit of scuttlebutt, a complete lie, which, was, which, had, some, um, which had some currency among those early British people. There was so much that those British people couldn't understand about the way Indigenous people lived and they had no sympathy. And in the 18th century, no great respect. There was a whole chain, great chain of being business in which white, um, in fact, specifically British men 
were at the very top of this pyramid of humanity and way down the bottom somewhere were people like the Indigenous people. Uh, you know, it's, it's only 200 years ago and we have to remind ourselves that we have come some distance. You know, that is no longer continued. So MacArthur tells her this and she doesn't really believe it uh, and she most certainly doesn't believe it when, and this is based on a historical fact, um, one of the Indigenous women comes and shows Mrs MacArthur her little baby. And that's with Mr Dawes, isn't it, when she's with Mr Dawes and she meets the, the women through him. In fact, in the book, it's with Mrs. Dawes, uh, with Mr. Dawes. In reality, uh, this woman, Duringa, actually simply came to visit Mrs. MacArthur in the house that she was living in. But I combined those two things because I'm a novelist. I'm allowed to do that. It's very much based on her letter, which she writes back to Bridie about the moment when Duringa came and showed her her baby. Her affection for Duringa, her admiration, um, her kind of soft, gentle affection is quite remarkable. Um, she lists a lot of um, Indigenous names, like names of people, and says, listen to how beautiful these are. So there's a lot of uh, lovely, warm sympathy there. So that, that, is, that is on the record, and I've, I've kind of taken that and run with it. And she says when she hears them speak, or your Elizabeth says, how beautiful their language is. And this is really the only time that we hear the Indigenous people speak in the novel. They're otherwise silent, and I'm going to come back to that. Um, and you, you mentioned this earlier, but there's a lovely way that you have expressing this, that when Elizabeth sees how beautiful Doringa is with her little baby, and then she reflects on this dreadful story, rumour that she's heard that the Indigenous people ate their babies, she thinks about this whole concept of how falsehood could travel and you've said how falsehood could travel down into the future in a watertight barrel. Do you just talk to us a little bit about that? Yes, it's really the heart of the book, that idea that uh, a false idea can be started and then how do you put it right? It's repeated from mouth to mouth and that's the, that's the sense in which the book is about today as well as yesterday. Mm. It's set in the past but it's very much about our world mm. where more than ever, um, stereotypes and cliches and polarised simple attitudes replace the truth, which is usually much more complicated. And you demonise people by making up the most offensive thing you could think of. It made me immediately think about the children overboard. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, exactly. How do you demonise people most effectively? You mm -hmm. just make up the cruelest, most inhuman mm. um, story that you can think of. That's exactly right. And that story then replaces any other story. It certainly replaces the truth and it replaces the complexity of the many stories that are probably the truth. So that's really, that's, that is the heart of the book. One of the silences at the heart of the book is the story about women whose story, you know, women of the past could not tell their story. So their truth has been replaced by these stories of, you know, the perfect compliant wife, etc. And it's the same with the Indigenous people uh, to some extent. Uh, the truth of what happened in the early days of settlement, the only written record we have and the only real record, I think, uh, is, the, is the British version. It's the white people's version. History is written by the victors, they say. So, you know, we pour over the documents um, 
that they left, you know, the diaries and the letters that, that, for example, the early governors and all those early people left. And if we take them at face value and don't look for the other story behind it, if we don't ask who's telling the story and what is their agenda, what, is that, what are they trying to gain by telling the story this way, then we will just believe this set of lies instead of not believing too quickly and thinking, well, okay, let's flip this story around. So, for example, in the book, there's, a, there's, a, there's an event called the Battle of Parramatta, which is on the historical record as a, as a real event of some kind. Um, and there is one account, and it's the British account of it. Uh, and I read it and I thought, this doesn't make sense uh, in all kinds of ways. Let's flip it around. Let's put it up to the mirror or turn it inside out like a sock and think, all right, this is the British version. What might the Pemelwee and his men, what, what account might they have given of this event? Totally different, I think. So it's like a, the book is a plea not to be drawn into that kind of polarised binary simplicity that um, I think the, you know, the internet has made it much easier for lies to gain mm, To propagate. Yeah. They, they've always done that. There's always been rumours. But there's something about seeing it in writing on the screen. Mm. I would like to have written on the screen of every computer in the world, do not believe too quickly, mm. engraved on the glass. When Elizabeth's an old woman reflecting on her life and she thinks back on the harm done to the Indigenous people, she says that, that of all the harm that was done to them, the worst is the replacement of the true history by a false one. And she describes that as a fundamental violence. Is that what you think, Kate, that of all the harm that we've done to Indigenous people, that that perhaps is, is the worst of it? Well, it's hard to say what's worse because we've done some pretty terrible things. Certainly very bad, though, because that, that goes to the heart. I mean, in Indigenous culture, a story has a powerful spiritual, philosophical meaning. Mm. And so to replace the true story uh, by a false one is to, it's a kind of blasphemy. It's mm. not, just a, not just a lie, but it's, it's, it's digging at the very heart of something. So we have done, I don't know whether that's worse than the deaths and cruelties that we have also inflicted, but it's pretty bad. And one of the problems with it is that um, it gets this kind of watertight look. Yeah. Nobody asks. Yeah. Nobody, nobody looks at those accounts of what happened and says, well, but is this really true? Is it likely? Could it possibly have been like this? And you do that very well here in that the conversation where the, Elizabeth is obviously taking your role really cross-examines her husband. He, he gives the version, the established version of what happened at that Battle of Parramatta. She really cross-examines him as to, to demonstrate how inherently implausible that version is. That's right. I've given her exactly my thoughts there. Um, yeah, I won't go into detail, but, no. but the, the fact is it is t highly implausible. Um, and... That was my way of saying, look, this is a book about a remarkable woman and it is a book about the fact that those, all those women of the past were silenced. But it is also even bigger than that. It is about all the people whose, whose voices have been silenced. Mm. And in the Australian context, that is overwhelmingly Indigenous people. The great thing is that I have lived long enough to see that starting to turn around. 
I mean, you know, Indigenous people now have a vivid, powerful voice. Not everybody is listening, but uh, the voice is there and it, it will not eventually, it, eventually it, it won't be silenced anymore. I'm glad that you mentioned that, Kate. Well, of course you would, because that is the, the central, one of the central concerns of the book. You dedicate the book to all of those whose stories have been silenced. I, I found it very interesting. You've written a number of books of historical fiction, The Secret River, Sarah Thornhill, The Lieutenant. How effective do you think historical fiction is as a way to give a voice to the voiceless and to give us a different perspective on history? And I suppose a related question is, what can you do with historical fiction that you can't necessarily do with a non-fiction book such as a biography or a history? When I wrote The Secret River, I was um, astonished. I really was astonished at the tsunami of mail that I got from readers. And they all said fundamentally the same thing, which is that this is stuff we want to know about. We want to understand it. We're prepared to look at. I mean, these are non-Indigenous mm. uh, readers who have said we, we, we're kind of hungry to know the truth about this and we haven't we haven't heard it really we've heard a lot of stuff about you know the wonderful pioneers and all the statues to the pioneers and this is the other side that we kind of it's as if they were saying we always kind of knew that this story was there the true story of of kind of um, um, the, the violence that was committed against indigenous people uh, we always kind of knew it was there and now you've made it possible for us to hear a version of it, a fictional version, but a very plausible one. The great power of fiction, I think, is that it can um, get to people at an emotional level. It's, it's what fiction does. And uh, it should never be confused with history um, because it isn't. History is a very diffi difficult and different discipline. Uh, and it has its own incredible powers. There's nothing like a, a bit of good historical research to turn the ship of your thinking around. But in a novel, you can feel that you know who those people are. Whether that's true or not is really irrelevant. You feel that you understand, and therefore parts of your imagination are opened to a new way of looking at things. And that, I think, is... Uh, it's something that historical fiction can do at its at its best to say, look, uh, let's let's pretend let's pretend that you're there. You know, let's you, you've you've heard one version of this. Now come at it from another way. And with fiction, you can kind of get in under people's radar if they're inclined to to somewhat um, resist some uncomfortable and confronting truths. Fiction is a really terrific way to kind of make a Trojan horse to get into their hearts, so that they th they think, "Oh, okay, I have to I have to accept this." Kate Granville, thank you so very much for talking with me today on Books, Books, Books. I wish you the very best of luck with the promotion and the talking about this wonderful book, A Room Made of Leaves. I can't recommend it more highly. I know that so many of your devoted fans have been hanging out for your next book of fiction. And so um, I'm sure it will be hugely successful, of course, as your others have been. And thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Nicole. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. 
If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbody.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.